0: Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the Back of the Range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. And welcome again to the Back of the Range. I'm your host, Ben Adelberg. This is Episode 55. Well, the PGA Tour had their first event in the new year. Not the new season, of course, but the new year. Congrats to Xander Schauffele. Truly an amazing performance to chase down Gary Woodland in the final round with a 62 at the Tournament of Champions in Hawaii. we got to admit, we were pulling for Woodland. We do like our Jayhawks around here. But definitely a great sign for Gary to shoot those scores with some new Wilson clubs in the back. So lots of really good play. Very cool to be watching golf in prime time. If you are on the East Coast like I am, How can you not think about the fact that the U.S. Open is going to be at Pebble Beach? So, really, really looking forward to that later this year. Before we get to this week's guest, I wanted to let everyone know that I'm going to be at the PGA Merchandise Show up in Orlando later this month. Yes, I somehow snuck in. Some of our previous and future guests are actually going to be there, so get to say hello to them. And some listeners are going to be there as well. I've already heard from several of you. So that will be very cool to connect with some of you that have been supporting the podcast. You know how much I do appreciate that. So if you're planning on attending, let me know. Shoot me an email. Connect with me on social media. DMs are open. I'd really like to meet up with as many people as possible. If you don't know how to contact me still, well, I'm glad you asked. You can find us on Instagram, the Back of the Range podcast, Facebook, Twitter, shoot me an email, ben at thebackoftherange.com. And yes, you guessed it, the website, the central hub, thebackoftherange.com, all the previous episodes, all the information you need is right there. So it's no secret by now, if you're a loyal listener of The Back of the Range, to know that we really do like supporting and talking about amateur golf. We've had past USGA champions like Mike McCoy, Stu Hagestad, They've been on the podcast, they're among the elite amateurs in the game playing on the national level. Well, what about the state level? Each and every state has their own golf association, and my home state of Florida is no exception. I wanted to learn more about the FSGA, so towards the end of last year, I took a drive over to Tampa to visit the headquarters of the Florida State Golf Association. I've been playing amateur golf in the state of Florida for about 15 years now, And I've played in plenty of FSGA events, but I've never been to the mothership. So for this episode, I knew that I needed to get face-to-face with my guest, and I'm sure glad that I did. Our guest this week is the Executive Director of the Florida State Golf Association, Jim Demick. Jim and I talked about how the FSGA, which is the largest state golf association in the country, which has been around since 1913, how it functions on a day-to-day basis. They have nearly 500 volunteers who serve as tournament officials, course rating experts, and they assist in junior and amateur golf in their local areas. They conduct over 600 days of tournament competition annually. To put that in perspective, that's about three times more than the PGA Tour. State championships, they have 38 of them, over 45 days of USGA qualifying events, and they perform more course ratings each year than any other organization in the country. We also talked about Jim's memorable moments as the executive director. How would you like to serve as the MC of a Hall of Fame ceremony where the honorees have been Bob Murphy, Gary Koch, and Mr. and Mrs. Jack Nicholas? So a really fun episode, really educational episode. So let's not wait any longer. Let's get to it. So Jim, thanks so much for welcoming me into the FSGA headquarters, and thank you for being a guest here at the back of the range.
1: Thank you, Ben. Great to be here.
0: Well, I, I appreciate you inviting me in here and getting a tour of the place, the facility. I need to take pictures of this and post it on our Instagram because this is actually fascinating how you are able to do all this and and completely, um, you, I mean, you run 30, uh, 38 state championships out of this office every single year.
1: Yeah, it's, it's tremendous. I mean, we, we're doing over 600 days of competition a year and handling all these clubs and helping club professionals. And it's amazing how much work gets done behind the scenes that people don't really know about, but it's, it's wonderful. We've got a great group of staff members and super volunteers. So it all, it all gets happen, handled.
0: And, and how did, how did you come to find this facility? I mean, this is just a kind of a, a generic office park that you can probably find anywhere in the country. There's all different sorts of businesses around here. And then it just on one door it says Florida State Golf Association. Then when you walk in here, it's an absolute clubhouse feel where you have you have holes cut into the carpet, and it you have trophies in this room, and then there's golf bags and hats and memorabilia everywhere. There's signed pin flags by Jack Nicklaus for Christ's sake. I mean it's 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 insane. How did this place come to be?
1: Well, you know we previous to this we were renting some space down the street in a, just an office building, and as we continue to grow and all the things we have to store and ship in and out of this location, we needed more space. And so during the you know the middle of the recession, when things were so tough, we were really looking around and we found a group of buildings in a business park nearby, well-located for us. And it made sense. So we ended up buying the building and it's worked out great because it gives us a lot of space. And frankly, this space is about making sure that the employees can effectively do their job in a good, comfortable setting. And this lets us do a better job for golf.
0: Sure. So b- before we get into all the tournaments, all the services that the Florida State Golf Association provides, you know, our, our research team looks into how you actually got into doing this. You have a experience being a CPA, which don't know how that relates to golf in any way, then a real estate developer. Okay, we're getting a little bit closer. Property, land, golf. I'm, I'm kind of seeing where this is going, but how did you first get involved working and, and becoming the director of the largest state golf association in the country. Well, was it a dare? Did did someone know something about you that, I mean, how did that happen? I had, this was,
1: this goes way back to 1996. The Olympics were in Atlanta.
0: Okay. A little bit before, a little bit after Hickory shafted clubs, but but before the the M threes and the M fours, just, just before Tiger wins the masters Uh, in 97. Exactly. So
1: approaching the Olympics, I'm in the, involved in a lot of real estate and had decided to kind of segue out of that. My wife and I were raising two very small children, basically not seeing them. We had other people raising our children. We decided to kind of okay. bail out. So we, uh, I sold out of my company. She was an assistant controller at Bell South at the time. We looked around. I'd grown up in Florida. She was from Connecticut. So I'd had some property in Tampa, liked the area. We ended up moving our two little kids down here, and I was just happy as hell until... Finally, she said, you know, you might want to do something other than play golf. So that was
0: uncomfortable, but so (laughs) how dare her, how dare she?
1: Well, yeah, she was, but as it turned out, um, Cal Korf, who'd been the executive director for, uh, 14 or 15 years at that point was getting ready to retire. And some friends of mine knew about this, contacted me and said, Hey dummy, you, you know, you're having too damn much fun. You might, you might be great if you know a lot about golf. You've been a, good amateur golfer all your life. You know a fair amount about business. They, they could use some help. Looks like an opportunity. So I figured, you know what, this might be interesting. I'd I'd been trying to see where I could do something meaningful, something in the school system that was too bureaucratic for me and ran me off. But so I, I looked at this and I, they were kind of a mess, frankly. And I thought, you know what, this would be kind of interesting. So I started talking to the executive committee at that time. Rick Wolf being one of them at that wow. time. How about it? Uncle Rick Wolf, that <laughs> legend.
0: Gotta get him. He's gonna be on the we're gonna get him on for next year. That's been a that's been a goal. So so Rick Wolf is is part of that executive committee.
1: He's he's part partly at fault, no doubt.
0: Oh, okay. Well anytime we can blame Rick Wolf for anything, <laughs> love it. So so you come on board. Um the the growth of the FSGA over the last twenty years has has been phenomenal. But what was it like when you first joined? Like, what was the, the culture of golf within the, the organization, within different clubs you went to? Kind of what was the culture around that time?
1: Well, we were a pretty small organization at that point. We really just served a very narrow market, which would be everybody referred to it as the Blue Tea Organization, just a group sure. of, of men. Just And it was a fairly small group. It wasn't an enormous group. It didn't even encompass the whole state because we right. were kind of hidden. People didn't necessarily know about us. Right. This was pre, pre-internet, really. I mean, literally people in Jacksonville, we were based out of Sarasota at the time. I don't know how they'd find out about us and, unless they happened to go into a locker room and a calendar or a schedule of competitions happened to be posted. They might get curious, but, but otherwise it was more challenging in that that day.
0: And now we have people that are literally driving from Panama city beach in the panhandle of the state down to Jupiter, Florida. And I mean, a 10 hour drive just to play in any sort of tournament. You have people all over the state that will go anywhere to play in a tournament.
1: Yeah, we do. We got It's yeah. a great, great group of players, both men and women.
0: So I want to speak to the fact that even though you are the director and you have a full staff that handles competitions both men and women and and juniors and handicap services and there's so many different things that that this organization provides but um, i want to talk about how important volunteers are to a state golf association i know we hear that at pga tour events or any professional events you know couldn't do without the volunteers it's kind of a quick blurb and then it kind of get it's kind of can get passed over at times How important are the volunteers to the Florida State Golf Association? They're absolutely
1: essential for Florida. Some of the other state golf associations um, are more staff-based. We're highly volunteer-based. We have hundreds of volunteers, and some of them extremely well-trained, really capable, wonderful people. Um, We would be nothing without them, and it's just that simple. Basically, our staff is really here to help the volunteers, to guide the volunteers, to cultivate, train, bring them along. And, you know, we have volunteers that start out working for us a couple days a year. And before you know it, they just love
0: it. And they're doing
1: it 200 days a
0: year. And when you talk about what they volunteer doing, like, can you tell me some of the things that they do? I mean, I see them, at a, like I play in FSGA tournaments. I see them at check-ins where you register for the event, or I see them out on the course as a starter. What are some of the other things that volunteers do to, to help the organization run?
1: Well, really three broad categories. You have governance, which is our board and, and those board members around the state. Mm-hmm. Then you have course rating volunteers, and then you have tournament officials or tournament committee members. The course rating, you know, you got over a thousand golf courses in the state. They all have a course rating and a slope rating. That is a fairly complicated process. That is not determined by a few people just going out there winging it around, sticking their thumb in the air and say, "Gee, it looks like a slope of 135." Right. These are engineers, scientists. Uh, accounting financial based people um, because it's kind of a numeric based system and a group will go out and spend three quarters of a day analyzing all the difficulty factors on a golf course. And then it comes back to the office where Gary Donay, who's probably the best in the country in course rating analyzes all the data that they've pulled together. We put it into a software that the USJ prepares for us and we come up with a course and slope rating finally. So that's a big hunk of what we do to make the handicap system work. Um, kind of unsung heroes of, of golf. No one knows they exist, but very important to get those. But then you've got the other categories as well.
0: Right. What, uh, in your opinion, what's the toughest golf course in the state of Florida right now? If you've got to go pick one that's just going to absolutely destroy someone that could possibly chase them out of the game. I mean, which, which is, what's a bad day? Great course, but what's a day that's just like, oh man, this place is going to eat me up.
1: Well, I mean there's a, there's a number in that category that can be absolutely sure. abusive if you want to set up the golf course. That doesn't mean they can't be set up very friendly. Of
0: course. Um but on a regular day, just a plain day, what's what's one of the toughest courses in the state right now?
1: Well, I mean it's just like you asked me which one of my children is most difficult. They're both Which difficult. one of your children is most difficult? <laughs> to- <laughs> Uh, you know, we just had the state amateur this year at concession, a tremendous golf course, incredible shot values, very difficult greens. You have to know exactly where on those greens to approach them. Certainly it's in that category. TPC Sawgrass, that is an absolute championship golf course. The Bears Club, fantastic yeah. facility. Jupiter Hills. I mean, you get me going and I'm going to have to read off 10 or 15 because right. they're, they're, it's just a, they're all in the same class. It's just a little bit slight difference of, yeah. of which seat they're in. But I'll tell you what, um, we're fortunate. We've got some, you know, very tremendous golf courses. Sure. And many of those great courses can be, can be made almost unplayable.
0: Of course. You know, you mentioned the volunteers with, with their course ratings and tournament setup. Um, when you set pins, when you set up a golf course for a tournament,
1: we, you, we don't actually don't set pins. They do that at bowling alleys.
0: Okay. When we you do set select whole locations. Hole locations. Okay. <laughs> wow. Jeez. You know I can't edit that out either. i got to <laughs> leave that in there. All right. So when you set whole locations on the putting services, how does that process start? Is that something that you're working directly with the golf course? Is that something where you come in and you decide how you want to set up the golf course? Is there a? Is that the director of the of tournament the, of the itself? Can you briefly explain just for people that when they show up to play an amateur tournament, whether it's an FSGA event or they're playing anywhere in the country, anywhere around the world, and they show up, they're like, well, well why is that pin there? And why did that tee get picked? What, do you have a specific process that you go through for that? A- absolutely. It's, one of the, it's a course setup is very important for a,
1: a competition. I mean, we're trying to make sure that the competition was equitable. We're not, we're not reaching for fairness. If you're looking for fairness, you're, looking at, you're in the wrong game but it's equally hard and equally easy for everybody. It's the same. But while you set up a golf course, you're considering the caliber of the players that are playing. You have to be thinking about the type of approach shots they're going to be hitting into the, into the grains, what type of – how how firm are the putting surfaces. All these things have a big impact on not only tee locations but hole locations. And so – and even your weather is going to dramatically – I mean, today it's raining here. Well, sure. We would be anticipating that if we had a tournament that was going on in the Tampa area today, we would have anticipated this, and that would have affected where we to put hole locations. First and foremost, we deal with a lot of rain in Florida. Well, over the course of a four-day tournament, you don't want to have your hole locations all in the low gathering spots because you won't ever get finished.
0: Yep. Yep.
1: So, but hole locations are critical, Ben, and you know you're thinking about par fives where someone might be going at a green and two. Some of it deals with pace of play. You don't want the first couple holes on either side to be brutal because you'll never get going. So you pick and choose where you want to have you know very challenging hole locations and that's relative to the to the skill of the field. A highly skilled field certainly you can go longer and make the hole locations much more challenging. But after all, most of the competitions outside our state opens and the qualifiers for the national opens are for amateurs and they're there to have fun. Now right. they're there to be tested. So, you know, we're not it, as we say, this is not men's or ladies' day. That's on, that's on Tuesday and Wednesday. This is a state championship because we've come ready to play.
0: Gotcha. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned setting the, the hole locations and making it tough for, for, t- for more skilled golfers. I just thought of probably the, the, the best players and the toughest day for the Florida State Golf Association, I would guess, is the day where you have your, your U.S. Open local and sectional qualifiers. How big of a monstrosity is that operation to conduct all of those local and the sectional qualifiers in the state?
1: Well, the U.S. Open is the one national championship that has two tiers of qualifying. So that is where you're right. We have local qualifiers. We'll run 15 local qualifiers around the state over the course of about two weeks. And then players, not only from local qualifying, but also players that are exempt in the sectional, will then appear at sectional qualifying. And so it's a great effort to get all those local qualifiers ready and conducted. Uh, the part crazy things happen. You know, you've got, this is being conducted in May. Well, that's when a lot of courses are coming out of an overseed period. Sure. So what was a gorgeous golf course three months ago may go through a bad transition. They may have, we may not have known that their Bermuda grass was weak the prior late summer and fall. And suddenly all the overseed dies out and the greens are much less than you want. So you encounter all sorts of surprises, mostly bad ones, when you're running golf tournaments. And then you've got weather pushing you around. But ultimately, you're right. That comes down, in this case, to one of the U.S. Open sectionals, um, which you're dealing with you know, extremely capable players. Sure. Over 36 holes in one day. And that has to be set up you know, as first class and challenging as you can set it up.
0: I, I know you've seen tons of them, you've been on hand for tons of them. Can you think of just a, a great story from a sectional where whether it went four or five additional holes or just a, a story of one guy getting through or one guy not getting through or or
1: well, this last year we had a
0: play well, we had, we had a playoff where Tyler
1: Stravasi qualified on the first playoff hole and he went from there to the to the US Open.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, and since he was an amateur We've known him since he's a very small boy. One of our printed pamphlets shows him as a little boy hitting a shot at Disney World and the sure. parent child with, with his father, Frank. But he was, uh, when he suddenly made this putt, it was actually on the second uh, playoff hole. And suddenly he realized, my God, he was going to the US Open. And that also made him immediately qualified for the rest of the USJ National Championships, it was basically sent him to Pebble Beach for the US Amateur. So to watch something like that, um, from a family that we've seen grow up with us was is just fantastic. Another, I'll tell you, a section story I like a lot. Um, we have an interesting pace of play policy. I wouldn't say interesting necessarily, but it's pretty pretty clear and specific. It's certainly different what the PJ Tour uses.
0: Yes, well, we're gonna we're gonna get into that too. So let's go ahead with your sectional story. I want to ask you about pace of play.
1: Well, our pace of play policy is fairly simple. We tell you how long it. You have to play each nine, right. and or actually the front nine, and then how long you have to play the total 18 holes. And fortunately, we've been doing this for about 10 years. Our players that play with us uh, with some frequency, and our junior players that have come up using this checkpoint system, have become quite used to it, and it actually works because players are more aware of their position. We're not trying to get anybody to race around a golf course. But a couple of years ago, I was explaining this, and it's a challenge at a place like a U.S. Open sectional. Because you've got players dropping in from the PGA Tour from other countries. They don't know about this. They've been playing on all sorts of different pace of play policies, whether they were enforced or not in different parts of the world. Well, Luke Donald's at the Bears Club, and on the first tee, I'm describing it to him. And you have to say it in pretty no uncertain terms. Hey, you guys don't make your checkpoint at the end of nine, you'll be subject to penalty, which means someone's probably going to get
0: penalized if you're not under your time or within 15 minutes of that group ahead. And this is Luke Donald at his home course, too. Absolutely. So it's a it's an interesting conversation. You're talking to this guy that's trying to get into the U.S. Open, playing at a place that he lives. He lives there. And then some guy's like, all right, here's how we're doing it today. And So, yeah, continue yeah, that story. So, and actually,
1: you know, I'm trying not to feel like I'm Bush League here talking to Luke Donald. Sure. You know, but just the same, that's kind of how you feel. And I'm kind of explaining this – a very foreign concept to him, but he was pretty interested by it. And so he, he asked me questions. He goes, really? He goes, you really will penalty? He goes, actually we do. And we have in this competition in the sectional before. And he goes, wow. And he said, does it work? And I said, absolutely. We're going to get around here in about four hours and 20 or 30 minutes. And he goes, no way. Because he's played in different qualifiers. He's seen everything. He's seen the five and a half hour rounds that everybody hates. And I said, Luke, do this for me. Find me after you the first or second round because he just didn't believe it. I said, right. and, and, and come tell me what you think about it. I'd love to hear it. He came and found me after the second round. I mean, I was way back in the clubhouse. He was looking for me. Someone brought him to me. And he said, my God, this was fantastic. He goes, why doesn't the, why didn't the tour use this? Because we played Whoa. our second round in about four hours and 20 minutes. Sure. So it really worked. Now, that's a not a full golf course. We had about 65 players. But just the same. These guys were you know, grinding it out to go to the U.S. Open and uh, playing a you know, extremely challenging championship level golf course course. and golfers can get around. It's just like, it's, it's kind of like getting 60 men or women together and say, could we all just play at a reasonable pace today? And if there's something to just prod along those five or six that are a little bit more deliberate, it can actually work.
0: That's, that's great. Well, that's, that's a testament to, to what you're doing here. When a former number one player in the world, Ryder cup star says, Hey, this is a good thing of what you're doing. That's fantastic. So you mentioned, uh, Tyler Strafasi. He is obviously not the only star that has come through the, the FSGA to go on to bigger and brighter things. I think Tyler is, um, he's at Georgia tech, if I remember correctly, and he is going to be, uh, at the Walker cup practice sessions this winter. So he's definitely on the radar of the USGA to play in the Walker cup. Uh, you've had a lot of players come through. So, we can talk about a handful of players. Uh, Billy Horschel, Blaine Barber, Sam Horsfield, Tyler McComber, uh, Kepka, Lexi Thompson. Uh, I mean, you've had all these great players come through. What's the What's a memory that comes about when you've seen some of these players as a junior through the Florida Junior Tour, which is a whole other conversation we could have, but when 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 is when did you first meet one of these players that you can think of?
1: Oh, I think Lexi was the one I remember the most, probably okay. because at age ten, at that point our junior tour was only thirteen through eighteen. Now we go down to nine with a division that goes up to between nine and twelve. But nonetheless, her um, father Scott had had contacted us and, and basically said, "Look, you know, this she can really play." Um, we knew her older brother at the time, and so we said, "Okay, we're going to let her come out." And see how she does. And, and we, we did that at that time yeah. frame. We allowed people to play up into the 13 to 15 age division if it could be demonstrated that they had the capabilities. Well, she was so phenomenal. It was amazing. At age 10 and 11, um, the way it worked, that if you won an event in our 13 to 15 age division, you could then play up in the 16, 18. Well, sure enough, so she wins in the 13 to 15. So now she's playing against the 16, 18-year-olds when she's 10 and i remember whipping around one time at disney and winning and i think she you know basically playing at age either 10 or 11 from basically the men's tee and shooting even even par for a couple of rounds like no big deal and at that point i mean Lexi is a incredible fit athlete but at that point she was just a little teeny girl yeah she wasn't huge and she just had this sweet swing and just dropped those fairway woods on the ball In fact, at one point we talked about, we wanted to see, it never worked out, but I wanted to see if I could get her to go to one of our mid-ams. I would have loved to have seen her. Oh,
0: dear God. I'd have loved
1: a cash game where I got to put Ben, you, and a whole bunch of other guys at 160 yards or 140 and have a close to the hole contest with this little 10-year-old girl, and she'd have been sitting there hitting a seven-wood, and she'd have whipped your ass. It was
0: unbelievable. Oh, (laughs) God. I have no doubt. No doubt. Um, So I remember playing in the state amateur at Doral in 2011, and I show up there early for a practice round. It's me and a couple other guys, and we're about to tee up on the first tee, and this kid comes up, and he's got this shaggy surfer hair. He's got like a shirt untucked or something. I'm looking at this kid. I'm just like, yeah, man, sure. You want to join us? Sure. And, of course, it's Tyler McCumber, and then he didn't even hit balls. He just walked up, just (laughs) literally looking like he just fell out of a college dorm room. Pretty and, much. Yeah. And just walks right up and, you know, we play a practice round. I'd see UF on the bag. I'm like, oh, that kid plays at Florida. And then, of course, I know his father, Mark McCumber, and start trying to piece it together. And then, of course, he goes out and wins. Wins. wins of course. <laughs> and I think I saw him at the pool with his father, hanging out after a round. He's doing cannonballs into the pool. And just and I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is something. But, yeah, so he wins. And now he's absolutely lighting it up. Um, well, he lit it up on the on the Canadian tour. I think he won three events in five, or something ridiculous. Now he's going to be on the web. Um, do you, What's your first react or first uh, interaction with with Tyler McCumber? I, I mean, as far as I'm not yeah, sure, I'm not sure the first time
1: I encountered him, okay. but I can tell you that the sensation is just you, you can. There's times you see something special in players. Okay. Now it doesn't always pan out. It usually doesn't, in fact. But there's a certain small solution set that you can just see, see the skill. You just see the orientation. Even though, as you described, it kind of comes in a rough and tunnel bundle. The wrapper
0: was definitely a yeah, little tattered there. So yeah, it looks
1: like it just kind of fell out of bed. Uh-huh. But there's certain players that can put the put the club behind the ball and just get it done. I mean, growing up in Palm Beach, I, I mean I played a lot of golf with Calcavecchia. And You know, Mark had kind of a rough and tumble way, just just like he does now. My God, did that ball get in the hole fast. It it was just amazing. So you see that quality in players. And, you know, I've heard many players talk about through the day about people just having the knack, the ability to get the ball in the hole. And there's just that special level of talent. I mean, Bob Murphy, you, you know, you've interviewed Murph. Murph was great. Murph's an amazing athlete. I grew up next door to him. Watching Bob Murphy play tennis. Now, he doesn't look like a tennis player just generally, because Murphy, right. Murphy's generally carried an extra four or five pounds around. Well, guess what? It doesn't matter what sport he's playing. The hand-eye coordination, the skill of that athlete, phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, just, so it's, it's it has to do with a lot of God-given gifts, but it also has to do with the hard work and it all coming together. And then, as we all know, it comes to, it's, it's what's in your brain. And when that clicks, look at Brooks. I mean, Brooks, Brooks wasn't, the, the all-star junior player. Right. But he got it together. Boy, did he work on his, his physical strength and athleticism and got his head together and good as anybody in the world, no doubt.
0: Yep. So we, we talked about a lot of these juniors coming up. I've talked to a lot of college coaches. I've talked to junior players. I'm constantly playing amateur tournaments, bunk, bumping into to kids and parents. Um, you know, what advice would you give to parents – on how to get their kids into golf the right way, get them competing if that's what they like. What are your kind of thoughts on what you've seen out of parents? Because you're around it so much. Yeah. What are your thoughts on just junior golf as a, as a whole? Like what's maybe a good blueprint to, to help kids along? Uh,
1: first and foremost, remember you're supposed to be supportive. Right. You're not supposed to be an overbearing, pushy parent. This isn't about you. It's about your child. And I've seen a lot of kids – it happens so much. It happens more, I'm afraid, in, in women's golf, where the junior golfer, and I'll blame the fathers, the fathers push and push and push and push. And we see so many girls get out of college and just stop playing golf. They're sick of it. They're tired of it. And it's because they weren't having as, as much fun as they were. not right. it, it was a job for them since they were 12 or 13 years old. You know, we talk about Lexi, what an incredible star. Well, she's been playing golf as far as she can remember, but... The family kept it fun. It it was a recreation. It wasn't a required regiment. And she loved it, so she did more of it. You have to keep them a little bit hungry. um, And you don't do that by shoving them all the time and just being omnipresent in their face. And so I see that as probably the biggest drawback um, with some parent actions. On the positive side, I mean, I think of Buddy Alexander, you know, his son Tyson, fine player. Well, his buddy was bringing Tyson up as Tyson was playing golf, Buddy's coaching at University of Florida, Tyson's a good junior. Buddy did this decided to not make him just go the whole full-blown AJGA schedule. He didn't go all Florida Junior Tour. Buddy was very rational about it. And I talked to him about it several times. He wanted Tyson to play a couple events at the state level, a couple events nationally with the AJGA he wanted to go play in some adult events. He made him kind of a well-rounded, balanced right, schedule, right. and I think that was a great approach.
0: Right, and also playing with adults, kids have to learn how to be mature and respectful and, and elevate themselves to interact with adults, and that's important too.
1: Yeah, and, and and I think
0: I know as a junior
1: golfer, in my day and age, there was, you know, growing up in the East Coast of Florida, there weren't as many. Junior tournaments, my gosh, there's so many junior tournaments to select from oh, as yeah. a junior. You know, you can play every day, every week. As a result, growing up, we played with more adults than I think the junior golfers do today. So yeah. I got the benefit of playing with a lot of adults and learned how
0: etiquette people handle themselves. Right, exactly. Um, well, let's talk about a really fun part of your job and about what the FSGA does. You have your annual dinner and your Hall of Fame induction ceremony uh, every year. Uh, depends on, you know. Obviously, not may have more than one honoree each and every year. But going down the list of names, you have Fred Ridley is in your Hall of Fame. He is now the the chairman of the uh, the Masters now at Augusta National.
1: Yeah, I think I think going in our Hall of Fame was a launching point for Fred's career. I think that I,
0: really, that's where it took off. I, I think I, I mean clearly, uh, <laughs> and and boy, this podcast is going to just explode as soon as I get inducted. So. Are you choking on your drink over there? Is that what's happening? <laughs> okay. Um, but no, you have, you have Gary Koch, uh, who's a legend at Florida. Same with Bob Murphy. You have Jack and Barbara Nicholas. That has to be a very special night where you get to honor the, the current year's champions and then reflect back with either Hall of Fame induction ceremonies or Lifetime Achievement Awards. Pick a story. There has to be tons. But, but have you ever just been at one of those events and just looked around the room and said, I can't believe I'm here right now?
1: You know, it happens every year. Okay. It's because it it, it encapsulates kind of the full breadth of what we do. Mm -hmm. We're there honoring our volunteers of the year. We're honoring volunteers that have been working with us for 25 years and people of that caliber. People that are being inducted into um, the Hall of Fame. Sometimes those are volunteers. Sometimes they're legends of the game that have meant so much to Florida golf. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's, – Every year I sit there and just am kind of overwhelmed uh, how it all comes off. And, and, you know, we run some videos and things that kind of encapsulate everything that occurred during the year. And the year goes by as such a blur each time that when you sit back and, and watch it, and we, we sense it here in the office when we prepare the materials for the annual dinner. And it's just, it, it makes you feel good because I yeah. think, good gosh, all this running around that we've been doing is, uh, has touched an awful lot of people. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful evening, but it's, also, it's a nice reflection on all the people that give so much to make this possible, and that's our, our volunteers first and a bunch of great players that are a lot of fun and, quite frankly, are awfully good people.
0: Yeah. The, um, of, for all the years that you've been at this dinner, uh, the, the Hall of Fame induction ceremony and the awards dinner, there's a lot of speeches that happen, whether it's by player of the year or, or, a, um, or an honoree. Can you think back to one speech that you just wish would have gone on about 15 or 20 minutes longer because it was so entertaining? Or, or there, you could see, like, man, if we could just get this guy or this woman, you know, get, get him out and just, you know, let him just turn him loose or turn her loose telling stories, oh. you would just, like, yeah, just don't bother me. I want to listen to, the, the, listen to this conversation. Well, and uh, to listen to the
1: story. one that comes to mind, Taffy Brower, an amazingly accomplished amateur uh, player from Southeast Florida. Uh, she is just so wonderful and so down to earth, homespun. And she got up and made her speech, and it was so moving. And she was talking about uh, her husband who had passed and, and how, what that meant to her. But the way she described it and talking about, I mean, she just didn't let any a- anything go untouched. And yep. she was just hysterical, but moving and and wonderful. And right. so when you get to see the personality of, someone coming out that everyone loves already. It's just great. Um, it, it's just really special to see that. It's
0: awesome. So, um, we, you know, we've mentioned all these great honorees at this event, you know, one of the volunteers that I really do miss a lot is, uh, is Mallory Privet. You know, I have a, I mean, my Miller Mallory Privet story is r- involving a, a U S mid-am qualifier at Quail Ridge in Boynton beach where it's pouring down rain and he's just like, all right, boys, go play. And it's just, it's literally pouring, and just we had to go play. And then there's another time I had an, a Florida Open qualifier at the exact same golf course, and it's we're in a weather delay for three hours. and it's literally me, the other guy I'm in the playoff with, and Mallory, and I think one other person, and we just sat in the, at Quail for about three and a half hours. <laughs> and I was, and and of course, I lose the, I lose the playoff. That guy gets in. I get in as an alternate anyway. So for four hours, it was it was a waste, but. Um, but it had to be done because Mallory was kind of a a very just stickler for the rules and just a very, very good uh, rules official and tournament director and volunteer director. Uh, Do you have a good Mallory Privet story?
1: Oh, I've got so many. Um, I've got so many endearing ones because this is, was just one of the most genuine, capable, humble individuals you could have ever met. I mean, Mallory was, I miss him dearly, too. I think everyone that ever knew Maori does because he was just special. Um, and he had a very you know he was a southern gentleman. Maui was not very tall, so he didn't have a no he was stature
0: not. no, he was not
1: but and he was always very pleasant and charming, but he also was very if you pushed him he was he wasn't going he wasn't going to be pushed very far. he under he was an absolute rules expert. Um, he'd been a Pratt Whitney engineer for 30 years. I mean, just a brilliant man. And he knew when he was, he knew when he was right. He was hold his ground. There was this one event at our, we had a club team championship and these were a team of five players where they're counting four scores and this one team from the Tampa area. And I'll try to be discreet with the names involved, but there was one player on this team who was a very big person and a very big personality. Gotcha. And he was very familiar with the organization, has won, had won a couple championships previously with us. And he was on this team, and he kind of turned in his scorecard and was out at the scoreboard talking to Karen Korff, the calligrapher, and, and then he started saying, wait a minute, this, hey, that score's wrong, you're writing that up there wrong, you need to go check that score. And I'm standing there, Maori's there too, and it's suddenly like, that's, that's kind of worrisome when you're running a tournament. Because what goes up on the scoreboard is usually reflective of what the scorecard sure. says. And we knew we may be heading towards a, either an incorrect scorecard that may require a higher score, remain, or possibly a disqualification. Well, anyway, sure enough, it ends up being a, he signed for a wrong score. And it's, he signed for a score lower than what he'd actually scored. So the, the rules call for disqualification. So we got to go over and tell this big personality that big man on campus, doesn't take this news very well.
0: I'm just looking at your brain going through the Rolodex of, how do I not say Portly? Uh, um, no, nah, he's just big. Okay. I, mean, I don't mean Portly. He's big. Okay, a he's a big man. Okay. Yeah,
1: he's twice the size of Mallory. So. Okay. And he gets so pissed off once he realizes that this disqualification is going to stand. He, and he knows, he, he knew, he but, knows he, but he just, suddenly he just was so frustrated. I think he was really more embarrassed for himself, but it came out, as sometimes it does with competitors. He's just furious and he and he had his golf bag off the cart next to him and he picks his golf bag and throws his golf bag 15 feet with all the clubs in it in front of the scoreboard and so i got little Maori privet here at all five feet five four inches going up to mr six foot five inches and just puts his finger right in his chest and makes it very clear if you do anything say anything more you are out of here and he was i mean he was dead serious and it was just it was to... just so funny looking at that comparison of big <laughs> and, then, and small and he got after him.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. Oh, um, well, that's a great Mallory Purvis story. Yeah. I, I, I miss him dearly as well. Um, all right. So I want to ask you a little bit about, you know, you, you run so many tournaments, junior amateurs, boys, girls, state and state opens, a lot of serious tournaments with a lot of fantastic players. But the game of golf, there's a lot of people that play around the state, in, in many states in the entire country, where you know they have their little game with their buddies. Maybe they shoot in the high 70s, low 80s. They're getting a handicap. They got a breakfast ball, and oh, those, that putt's good. It's not serious competition. Yeah. Is there a place in the FSGA or in other areas in competitive golf where p- players like that can come and feel welcome in it and have fun? What are some of the Maybe the less stressful, less serious tournaments that the FSGA runs.
1: Well, yeah, it's like you're setting me up for a promo. I love it. Um, I mean,
0: <laughs> I'm getting stories, so I'm going to help you try and get the word out about this. You know, 106 year old organization that's the oldest in the state of Florida. So I'm trying to do what I can to help you I out. I like that. I like that. Yeah,
1: actually, we do. You know, we
0: you guys, because you should get shirts and hats too. Make it make it a whole thing. You know, just get logos on your shirt.
1: Yeah, be good. We'll get dialed up. Yeah,
0: just get something. All right, so talk to me about these tournaments.
1: You know, a number of years ago, we we recognized as we grew over the last two decades, the first thing we did was we were growing men's golf. Then we ended up merging with the women, and we've done a good job continuing to merge women's golf. But we recognized that exact player you're talking about wasn't in our spectrum. We weren't helping that person. We weren't trying to provide anything uh, for them so much. And so we started holding more events that were less than fully serious. Um, but don't get me wrong, the players take it absolutely
0: seriously. Of course.
1: But it, does, it, it just doesn't require the four-day commitment of a, playing in the state am or, or traveling across states. So we started these one-day competitions. Now, the thing I love about the one-days, and it's there's scratch golfers playing in it, there's 10 handicaps playing in it, and there's 20 handicaps playing in it. We have a number of different tees that people can play from, because as you said it's fun it's a, it's a game we're supposed to be having fun we're spending money to go play a game somewhere we're supposed to have an enjoyable time but it's kind of nice that there's some a little bit of competition in there too we don't want a cutthroat competition because first off it's a net event and running net events at a state level if if there's much money involved or gift certificates involved someone's just going to come in and ruin it
0: right exactly so we all know who that guy is we so. don't
1: want we don't yeah. want that we don't want that to be the objective so we run 200 one-day events around the state um, that have just turned out to be fantastic because it involves those people that are so passionate about this game. I mean, they wouldn't dare not be watching the Masters every day of the tournament. Sure. They're no different than the scratch golfer. They just don't get in the hole quite as fast. Exactly so, right.
0: Um,
1: but it's really turned out to be a great program, and we found additional volunteers and all sorts of people through it. So it's great.
0: What's what's the one tournament of the year that, that you, for just the fun aspect, for the – the, the players that are there, maybe the, 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 the clubhouse post beers afterwards, or getting together and, with dinner or dinners or whats the what's the term that you, on that level of not being so serious that that you would recommend that players go and play, but that you also personally, I got to go down to this tournament. I don't know if I'm gonna be the be the starter. I don't know if I'm gonna be you know handed out waters on the first tee. I just got to be. At the, I got to be there that weekend. That's gonna be fun.
1: Well, we run a a two a two person shootout, a two man shootout. We also run one correspondingly um, in women's golf. So we have a two woman shootout. We even right. have a mixed shootout. And the th- nice thing about the shootout is it has three different formats. So you're playing alternate shot with your partner, which is always testing. You get to play a a two-person scramble, which is fantastic. And then you get to play four ball or best ball, as a lot of people call it. And then just the nature of that we play, specifically the the women behave pretty well. It's the men that carry on quite a bit. Uh, So, I mean, our two-man shootout uh, (laughs) is just a blast because, yes, you've got some players there that are very good players, and and they're they're playing on a winning. They're going to give it everything they've got. Right. But just the nature of the event causes there to be a lot of players there that they're playing hard, but they're having a hell of a good time doing it. So um, we actually play two rounds one day. That's where we're playing the alternate shot in the, in the two-man scramble format. And there's probably a few beverages handled at the, at the turn. Um, and it gets to be just a, it's a heck of a lot of fun.
0: I think one of, the ugliest, uh, one of the ugliest days in the FSGA is the Sunday morning round of the two-man shootout. After 36 holes on Saturday, and all the alleged uh, adult beverages, and then you have to be there for the 8 a.m. shotgun the following day.
1: Yeah, it's it it separates out the men from the boys pretty easily. Yeah, you know,
0: I I've seen a couple bloodshot eyes, and I've uh, I've seen a few things there. Yeah, it, hold the, hold the names out, but give me a good two man shootout day two story. But yeah, keep the names from the, from. Uh, we don't want to incriminate anyone here. Well, we
1: yeah, we There's a
0: family show. This is a family show.
1: We have had some players on that final round have a little trouble getting to the golf course a couple of times. I'm not sure if that's not, you know, I'm not familiar with the area where we held the course or or something else, but they've been delayed. So we've had some issues with players getting to the course or as you've suggested, just a little trouble getting into their cart almost. So
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: but again, it's a good competition, but the boys are playful. Um, and I mean, it's even happened on day one where I can think of one player who I know very well who in the middle of this afternoon round forgot what format we were playing Whoops. and got confused of which format we were playing. So we had to, you know, straighten them away on that because it's important if you're sure to play the correct format. Of yeah, course, that's, so.
0: I mean, rules are rules. Yeah, you mean,
1: absolutely.
0: You so I get too technical. Okay, so we have uh, a small segment at the back of the range called the Quick Bucket. These are quick little rapid-fire questions. I'm going to get into that in a minute, but I'm going to throw a Hail Mary and go, go into this topic and see how far I can get you. And if we have to wave off, we will wave off. In my experience, one of the most controversial things that's occurred in the Florida State Golf Association was surrounding this year's state mid-amateur championship. It was at Coral Creek. Uh, There's a controversy around the final match between Mark Dahl and Jeff Golden. The specifics or the alleged specifics of of what occurred are readily available on the internet, and that can be researched by anyone interested. Um, What I'm interested in hearing, which I don't think I've ever heard uh, be publicized, is the steps that the FSGA took to make the ruling that they made, which was to and I'll let you get into that if you'd like to, but to talk about exactly the, the specifics and how things occurred, how you exercised the rules appropriately to award the championship by default to Mark Dahl. Is that something that you can discuss as how you came to the ruling?
1: Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, we're talking about the rules. So this may sound a little clinical, but just the same. Right. Uh, the rules are pretty cut and dried on how things are applied. We had a match, doesn't matter what match it is, it happened to be the final match. Right. And during that match, um, there was one player, and this is match play, basically called a penalty on the other, I'll call it a team, it was the player and the caddy. The other caddy had done something that was a technical violation of the rule, and so one of the players called a penalty. That penalty was upheld, and so it was a loss of hole penalty. And this happened on the ninth green. That caddy who had made this mistake um, was frustrated that he'd caused his player a hole and walked off the course. And so he was gone. The two players continue playing. And then on the 17th green, uh, the, the skies just opened up. They'd been mm-hmm. raining a little bit up until that time. The skies just opened up. So the match couldn't continue. We had to suspend play. Uh, one player stayed out in the, Rain shelter, Mark Dahl, the eventual winner, and the other player came into the clubhouse. And he went to his car, and at some point in his car, something happened. He come he came back into the pro shop very quickly and said he had been assaulted by this former caddy. Right. Um, we take that extremely seriously. Immediately, want you know, we immediately contacted. The authorities wanted police brought in, find out what had happened. A policeman, sheriff's deputy did come, fully investigated, talked to all parties involved, et cetera. This was an a rain delay that continued for some time. And, you know, our hope was that the players would go back and play the match um, and, and complete the match, particularly since it was so close to being completed It's the final match of the sure. championship, et cetera. But the player who had alleged that he'd been assaulted didn't, feels as if he could continue. Um, I, I don't know if it was physical or if it was mental or what, not a physician to, to make that call. Sure. Nonetheless, uh, for a while, he suggested he was going to go back out and play. And then ultimately he decided, no, I just don't want to go back out. I just really shouldn't. I can't or whatever. And so he, he did not. And as a result of that situation, this was a, the fact that it happened during a suspension adds a little gray sure. coloring to it. The fact that it was ex caddy. This is someone who had walked off the golf course an hour and a half before that was alleged to be involved in the incident. Yep. This wasn't two players getting after each other. Right. And so the rules, um, at the time that we were able to resume the golf course, the golf course was in good condition. We'd gone out and checked the greens and they were very playable. Um, so when it was time to resume, uh, we said it was time to resume, and the player that did not want to resume, we talked with him, and he just said, no, I just don't want to play him. He understood that it was going to cost him the match. He felt that the other player probably should have just conceded the match to him. The other player didn't feel that way. So that's when the rules officials come in and 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 follow the rules of golf.
0: Have you ever been in a situation like that where, I mean, did you have to contact any other like any rules officials or was that something that people on hand knew exactly what the rule was? Did it add any, were there any additional conversations about, okay, what's the procedure here? And I'm not actually asking so much about this specific event. I guess what I'm trying to, to uh, show is that how serious that the rules of golf are taken by the FSJ and all the other state golf associations in the country and the chain of command and who was contacted and how that whole process was handled. Yeah, it's
1: a good question. It's amazing because we have such a network of rules experts around the state and around the country.
0: Because this is a very unique situation. Yeah.
1: Well, but we have other crazy rulings that come up too that you want, you want to make sure you get it absolutely correct.
0: Right, right.
1: And so when something comes up, you want it right. And what's wonderful is that the people on site immediately dealing with something are occupied with a lot of different things going on. Right. Um, but by making a phone call out to one or two of our key people – Those people immediately turn around and network out instantly to other very experienced rules officials, and suddenly you have hundreds of years of experience collectively going, nope, you know, and that would include people from the United States Golf Association. Right. That would include people from the PGA Tour. This is instantaneous, that within five minutes, we're consulting with tour officials, with United States Golf Association officials, with people all over the country. And it it occurred in this situation very much the same way. And uh, the conclusion was, I mean, just unanimous that that, these are the only options we had under the rules of golf. Exactly. And regrettably, the the players, we actually in this situation had a little leeway that we expressed. Uh, We had a wet golf course. It was raining. Normally, when it's time to resume, you have to resume. Well, we're the committee, and we decide when it's time to resume. Perhaps if if if, it, if the player was willing and we could have rolled forward to the next day, those two players in a match certainly would have been allowed to do that. And we would have accommodated that. We right. had that happen uh, this year in a, in a different competition, in a senior match play where the two finalists, one of the finalists, couldn't be there.
0: Right. That's uh, Pete Williams yeah. and Bill Barnes.
1: Right. And guess what? Those two gentlemen spoke about it. Uh, Pete had a, a flight schedule as a pilot that he, had no way to get around. We'd been delayed what ended up being a day by rain. And guess what? Those two guys sat down and said, gee, when can we come back and play this match? And so that's that's what they did. Now, there was no extenuating circumstances in that one. Right. The former one you mentioned had some extenuating circumstances, which I think made one of the players just want to be done with it, and understandably.
0: Yep. Yep. Um, okay, so we're going to keep things a little bit lighter here to, to close out this episode. Would you rather play a round of golf with uh, with no golf tees or no wedges? No golf tees. So would you rather rewrite the ending of Tin Cup so that Roy McAvoy wins the U.S. Open, or would you completely eliminate the existence of Caddyshack 2? Uh,
1: Caddyshack 2 has got to go. <laughs>
0: It's a popular one. Uh, let's see. Would you rather get a free week badge to the Masters for you and three of your friends for five consecutive years? Or would you rather play one round of golf at Augusta National with uh, three ex girlfriends? Wow, that's tough.
1: I think I'd better take the tickets uh, since I've been married for 31
0: years. There you go. <laughs> uh, let's see. Would you rather play in, uh, well, I'm sorry, would you rather win the PGA championship? Or would you rather play on two losing Ryder Cup teams?
1: I'd rather win win the PGA.
0: Okay. <laughs> this one, again, <laughs> on. this is a funny <laughs> one. Well, we just talked about uh, pace of play. So, ha- would you rather have every round of golf that you play take at least five hours, but you break par every other round, or would you rather have every round take four hours or less, but you never break eighty?
1: I couldn't play the rounds. I couldn't play that all my rounds over five hours, so I'd quit the game.
0: There you go. Uh, let's see. Um, Jack Nicklaus won the Masters in 1986. Compare that to a victory for Tiger Woods in the Masters, his fifth green jacket, which would be the more substantial victory. I
1: happened to be there on Sunday in 1986. What? Jack Nicklaus. What?
0: Hold on. Never had anyone in, the, in this full year of, of the – no one's ever said that. That has never been the answer to that question. You were there in 86 when he won the Masters. I was
1: sitting right at the 16th green when he made the putt and he made the eagle.
0: You're – Excuse me, excuse me, the, 15th, 15th green e-
1: and watched him almost hold on 16. It was the best. I knew it was the most climatic moment I will ever and would have ever seen in sports. It was at the time I knew it. Then watch Seve come along and dump it in the lake. You just
0: – You were there for that. Yeah. Oh my God.
1: I was with my I was with my wife, uh, Gigi, and I were there right of the fifteenth green. We set up chairs there earlier in the morning. Yeah. And then we wandered around and did a lot of other things. We came back to those chairs as Jack was still on the front, and so the tournament was you know really starting to pull towards an end. And Nicholas birdied nine and ten. Yep. And I said, Gigi, I can't stand it. I got I got to go. You you wait here. And I zoomed over there, watched him, got over there in time to to see him play eleven. He bogeyed twelve. Yep. Um, watched him birdie 13 did not then when he went ahead and headed up 14 I crossed the fairway and got back across 15 back down to my chair and that's when he hit that shot in there close on 15 made that eagle putt made the birdie putt on 16 Seve came along and dumped it hit that shot in the water that I mean the 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 gasp or the groan I guess that the thousands of patrons let out at that moment it was just I'll never forget it and most memorable moment in sports of my life.
0: Wow. That is a great story. (laughs) That one wins. Okay. So that one definitely wins. Um, But what
1: Tiger did in 97 at Augusta, winning by 12, 12,
0: 18 under. I mean,
1: it's just hard to fathom what he did there. And at the open in
0: 2000, what's uh, what's your favorite is, is the masters your favorite to go as a golf fan? I mean, can you think of anything remotely close? Because you've gotten to be a starter. I mean, you've worked to USGA events. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what's of, what's the best part of your job? I forgot to ask you that. What's the best part of your job? Actually, okay, I'm sorry. What's the best part of your job outside this office when you're on site? Probably seeing kids win. Okay.
1: And just seeing they're just a kid that hasn't won much suddenly, suddenly win the first time or second time and just really yeah. see that sense of accomplishment, quite frankly, that um, – it's as endearing as it gets. Um, I sometimes get to see that with big kids like you. Ooh, I know. So I know. You know, take down the mid am, and I'm gonna see that grin in your oh, face. Oh man, that'll be, a, <laughs> that'll be a fun time. I've the, gotten close. The joy, the joy of victory, yeah. the joy of of accomplishment is uh, is very very satisfying to see. But I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you, overall for me in this position, it's making sure the entire event comes off beautifully. Because there's times we're not really focused on who's winning. Right. We, as an organization, our volunteers, our officials, our staff members, we're trying to make sure everything comes off beautifully. And and so sometimes the event itself may not be that dramatic in the way someone wins, but the event comes off so well that that we're very, very pleased and you right. feel a lot of accomplishment out of that from our side.
0: And I'm going to dump this back in earlier in the episode, but we didn't hit on the fact that, you know, I'm here walking around your office and I've, or the, the, facility here for the FSJ and there's there's i've been playing FSJ events for probably about 15 years now and i'm looking around at, at these these desks and offices and the people that are working here a lot of young faces i mean you've really kind of transitioned the staff here over the years where you have a lot of you know your director of men's competitions kyle g jacoby he's late 20s yep darren green uh, jeff magadich these are all guys that are in tournament ops but a lot of young faces here. Is that kind of conscious? Is that kind of where you think things are going? Or what does it mean to have a young staff here? Well,
1: I mean, youth is fantastic. It brings fresh ideas, new demands, new challenges, new ideas. At the same time, it's a tough job running golf tournaments, driving around a state, um, being away from home with such frequency. It's difficult to find someone who has a, a family that would be willing to do that, right? Um, you know, sure. There's there's executives that travel continually. There's people that travel all the time, but the compensation is different. Sure. And so that's why someone will do it. Um, but these people do it because they're passionate, first off. And so it's exciting if you start out to see the state, to see the golf courses, of the state, to learn how to run these competitions. So we're kind of a launching pad for young people in their careers heading off, and we. We really focus on making sure that they get a a broad range of exposure because we want all their skills to develop, their business skills, their office skills, their people skills, so they're going to be successful as they go forward in their future.
0: Well, Jim, this has been fun. Um, We've been trying to do this all year long, but I've been at tournaments playing golf, and you've been running tournaments. So glad I got to come over here and see the mothership, and uh, maybe we'll try and do this again next year. So. Thanks for thanks for coming here at the Back of the Range.
1: Absolutely. Look forward to seeing you on the golf course and come back here anytime.
0: And there you have it. Another great episode here at the Back of the Range. Special thanks to Jim Demick of the FSGA. Special thanks to everyone at the Florida State Golf Association for what they do for amateur golf here in Florida. Again, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Check out the website, thebackoftherange.com. And we'll see you again next week here at the Back of the Range.